Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 20th of May, 2019, and this is episode 114. On today's programme, I talked to Dr Martin Purdy about religion and chaplains on the Western Front. I spoke to Martin over a rather crackly phone line from his home in the Northwest. Martin, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. We're going to talk about your interest in religion and chaplains during the Great War today. Before we start, can you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in the First World War? I became interested in the First World War about three decades ago, actually. I was in a pub with some of my friends and we were talking about places we wanted to go and see. And two of us said, oh, you know, I've always wanted to go to the Western Front to see those the famous sort of you know, infamous white rows of headstones and have a mooch around. And, and we sort of said, right, let's go. And we went and basically we just got completely sort of hooked on it and were going initially sort of regularly three, four times a year. Um, started researching people and then obviously started researching family members, wrote books, on and on it went from there. It's a bit like a cult, I always think. I, I have a very similar progression as well and then you sort of, you know, <laughs> do the do the family research, get the PhD and then join the Western Front Association and then it's the rest is history as they say. Yeah, quite, yeah. So but it's it's been it's been an interesting sort of journey because um, you know, I suppose when when I started, you know, looking at this uh, the First World War and, you know, my initial interest in it all those years ago, there was no way I would have envisaged that sort of here I would be all these years down the line and, you know, obviously, like you say, have MAs and doctorates and, you know, and and most of my work involves, you know, historical research and most of that involves the First World War. I know. And today we're going to talk about religion. Now, can we start about looking at religion in Edwardian Britain 100 years ago before the war? What was the role of religion and how prevalent was it amongst the general population? Well, I think this is one of the the hugely underestimated aspects. And people are sort of quite misguided about religion because we live in a very secular age. And we are sort of, you know, quite naturally disposed towards cynicism, or lots of us are, in relation to religion. We kind of impose our own modern precepts on the past. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, religion was immensely important to, you know, the Edwardian. There was, yes, okay, the Victorian era brought in the concept of leisure time and people sort of weren't going to church as often as they had been. But that didn't mean to say that religion wasn't still central to their lives. So most people of the sort of Edwardian generation would have gone to Sunday school, regardless of class. Religion would have pervaded, you know, it would have been at the core of their moral sort of uh, compass. Um, And so I think that sort of religion plays a 
far, far, far greater role in the psyche and the motivation of the, the generation that fights in the Great War than people recognise. And it has a huge role to play um, within on the battlefield and within the, the military machine. So what was the role of the pre-war army chaplain? Well, the pre-war army chaplain didn't, they didn't tend to get their, their hands too dirty, really. They, they were very much of the officer class. You know, of, of course, the, you know, the, the pre-First World War and indeed the early years of the First World War until casualties took their toll. I mean, the British Army is an incredibly, you know, class-driven organisation. There was a real class hierarchy. The chaplains themselves conformed to that. So, you know, they, 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 were, they weren't the sort of chaplains who, I suppose, as, as the war progressed, we see this sort of idea of chaplains, you know, as the First World War progressed, the chaplains becoming much more actively involved in, you know, um, the sharp end of, of the service. And, and, you know, very much in the thick of it quite often, whether that be in sort of a hospital and helping out, you know, and in, 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 in dealing with, with, you know, the, the horrors that might be visible there, right through to actually being in the frontline trenches and in some cases going over the top with the men. So it's a very different, um, an incredibly, you know, huge development within the role of and the involvement, the practical sort of hands-on involvement of the chaplains pre-war and then as the war developed. Um, and of course, you know, the, 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 the interaction that the chaplains themselves had outside of the officer's mess and hands-on with your average infantryman, you know. So it's a very different um, situation develops as the war progresses. So obviously we've got the wars, wars declared, and there's also a massive expansion of the of the British Army um, from its original small sort of um, gendarmerie policing imperial garrisons to a mass conscript army in 1918. And, and was this reflected in a similar expansion in the role of the chaplain's department within the, the old old regular army? Absolutely, and I think this is this is the, this is an interesting thing, because it's how complicit the military machine is in that, and that shows you how important the military machine knows that chaplaincy is to the functioning of the army itself, of the men, of morale, a, a myriad of different things. So let, let's just take, for example, you know, um, let's take the Roman Catholics. So at the start of the First World War, there are 17 Roman Catholic military chaplains. And then by 1918, there are 643 of them. And you see, you know, obviously a proportionate uh, increase across all of, you know, the, 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 the denominations. And the reason the military is doing this is that they, they, they're using it on a number of levels. One, because they do know that, religion is important to people that even if people aren't going to church they've hackneyed phrase but going to church religiously every sunday there is still this diffused form of religion that permeates the life of the edwardian and um and so they believe in god they, they do believe in god and this is used by the military so I mean, you, 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 there's, there's, you know, obviously at the, at the at the one end of it with the sacraments, 
which is, you know, for the High Church, the Church of England, the High Church and the Roman Catholics, the sacraments and sacristy and those rituals are incredibly important. They have a very important role to play um, in things like, you know, unction for the dying. But it goes further than that. It's, it's, it's about that idea of almost of crusade, of jihad, if you want. So, I mean, you, you, you get sort of certain, I mean, there are, there are some quite interesting cases, you know, people like Major General Sir William Blake, and he would not allow any of his chaplet prior to battle recite anything to, uh, at the pre-battle masses other than texts from the Old Testament. He wouldn't allow New Testament texts. So it's like, you know, there's no turning the other cheek or being good to their neighbour. This is all about fire, brimstone and, and getting people like worked up to kill. Also, the sense that God is on your side and this is right. This is, you know, you, you are doing this for the common good. The, the enemy of the barbarians, they're a different creed. And OK, there may be sort of, you know, similarities between their faiths. But the Germans are, you know, if you're a Catholic or, or you're a non-conformist, the Protestants, they're not from your creed. And if you're a, a, a British Protestant, well, you're Anglican, they're Lutheran, they're different to you. So, you know, you can, you can create differentiation within that. It becomes more complex when you look at the actual Catholics themselves, because obviously there was, within the central axis, like the Austrians, for example, were all Catholics. So you get Catholics fighting Catholics, which created some quite interesting situations on the battlefield with, you know, the Catholic priest, might, you know, infamously, I think William Doyle, who's perhaps the most well-known of the Catholic, um, and most decorated of Catholic chaplains, you know, got up before the battle, you know, on the Messines Ridge in 1917 and stood on the parapet and, and gave, you know, a blessing of, uh, to the to the enemy over the other side, you know, that, you know, may may you also find a place in heaven when we've kind of kicked you into oblivion, you know. But but there is no doubt about the fact that the that you know religion was used by the army, one for that those kind of you know jihadi sort of purposes, two for moral righteousness, three to sort of keep soldiering on the right track to try and keep them in line, you know. A huge problem for the British Army, obviously things like sexually transmitted diseases, etc. You know, taking tens of thousands of men, far more men than trench foot, for example, out of the line with illness. You know, you use the you use your chaplains to try and keep, you know, a sense of moral order that helps the military machine. So you've got, obviously, the army trying to, to control soldiers' behaviour through the, the chaplain department and chaplains. How did soldiers view chaplains in the front line, um, and how did they view them in the context of their religious beliefs in, in the trenches? Well, I think this, this, this put a real pressure on the chaplains, because I think the chaplains themselves were very aware of the fact that the men had a lot more respect for them if they shared in the danger, uh, just as the men would have more respect for those officers who they saw sort of kind of, you know, prepared to roll the sleeves up and lead from the front and, and be, you know, in, in dangerous situations. And that's how the men very much felt about the chaplains as well. And that put a lot of pressure on the chaplains of all, all denominations because they had all been told that they shouldn't go beyond the advanced dressing stations. Um, but of course, the, the Catholics uh, bent those rules because they used the excuse that, you know, well, 
it's part of our faith that, that, that dying Catholics should have the right of, of you know, extreme unction. Um, and that then placed massive pressure on the Church of England chaplains and, 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 and the other chaplains to, to replicate that. Because, of course, as people like, you know, Robert Graves and Siegfried Sassoon, who, who love to give the establishment a kicking, they they use that kind of thing to give the Church of England a kick in, saying, oh, well, you know, the chaplain, the, the Catholic chaplains were always in the thick of it and the Church of England ones were all, you know, um, staying out of harm's way, which is, a, which is, which is completely unfair. Um, I mean, you, won't, you only have to look at the, the, the fatality lists for the chaplaincy service to see that that's, you know, a nonsense because there were uh, 166 British chaplains killed, of whom 98 were Anglican, 34 Catholic, there's 12 United Board, 11 Presbyterian, 10 Wesleyans, and one Salvation Army chaplain. You know, which speaks for itself, and, and in fairness to, the, to the, the Anglican chaplains, there were only three Victoria Crosses given to chaplains in the First World War, and all three of them were to Anglican chaplains, not to Catholic chaplains. But these are how, you know, the kind of myths that grew around, and, and there was a lot of pressure on the chaplains to be seen to be at the sharp end. And I think a lot of the pressure from that was enhanced by the fact that, of course, the French and Belgian chaplains were very much expected to be at the fore. In fact, they, you know, they, they were expected to serve in the rank and file, which is reflected again, you know, in the French clergy. I think there was, there was well, there was over 4,600 French clergy killed so there was a huge amount of pressure on them to be seen to be, you know, at the sharp end of it. And, and that would win them respect of the men as well. So what do chaplains' uh, letters, diaries and memoirs tell us about their experience of uh, religion and service during the war? I think that they, they found it an incredibly, in, in a strange way, an incredibly positive thing spiritually. There was a sort of, I suppose, a sense of it. I can't remember who sang the song now, but there's a, there's a, there's a song that I'm familiar with. It sort of says, you know, when, when you lay in a hospital bed, seriously ill, uh, when, you know, your, 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 your child hasn't returned home and it's late at night and the police knock on your door, when you're on a battlefield, you're not quite so cynical about religion as you might have been before. Here you are in a war, and, you know, the, the horrors of war and, and the, the fear of, you know, when, when you're in a frontline position of, you know, am I going to survive this? People find faith. And, you know, and there is, I suppose, a, there was a real sense from the chaplains of a vitality to what they were doing, a relevance that, you know, ministering in your sort of parish back home, not perhaps so much in, you know, the, the, the slum urban areas, where, you know, you would perhaps be kind of have a real sense of being desperately needed at times. But, you know, there, 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 was, a, there was a great sense of we are, we are needed here and we are having a positive impact, not just in terms of what became, you know, some, some historians refer to it, particularly, uh, again, I, I, I think unfairly in terms of the, the Anglicans, but... You know, the idea of holy grocery and this idea of the, a lot of the chaplains were just there kind of like handing out cigarettes and chocolate bars and, you know, 
a practical side to it more than a spiritual side. But I don't. I, I disagree. I think that's unfair. I think that the Holy Grocery was a very important part of the chapel, any chaplain's role, in addition to the spiritual aspects of it. And I think that they they felt a great sense of worth in that. That they 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 felt that, that you know they they were achieving something. And indeed, there were a lot of you know there were a lot of religious conversions on the battlefield. I I, I think that they they did get a. a, a, a uh, you might feel that there was, you know, they might have questioned their faith, but there's very little evidence of that. And I, and I think that what you have to remember is, is that this was a popular war, and it was a popular war with the public, and it was a sense of, you know, the the beast, this invader that's is kind of, you know, uh, in, in sweeping across Europe, and you know, the, the claims of barbarity, particularly in the early years, and um, and the sense that this is this is right, you know, we have to stop them. This is what you know is the right to do, and we are playing a part within that, and, 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 and a valid part within that. So, when we come to look at chaplains in the in the broader sense of their impact uh, during the war, what difference did they make in, in terms of to soldier morale, resilience, and, endu- and endurance of combatants during the conflict? And I know that's probably really really difficult question to answer. But it's, I think I think they made a very big impact of that. I think that there was a sense that I suppose the men felt that they were there for a different. Well, they were on the same side. Perhaps they saw them as reflecting the better side of human nature. I mean, I think I think this the you know the most creative chaplain in the First World War, Theodore Bailey Hardy. I mean, he, he, he could barely see his, you know, he's so short-sighted. And he was an old man. He was too old to go. They didn't want him to go. He kept pressing and pressing and pressing to go. They allow him to go. And, you know, and he, his thing was he'd be crawling around in the dark in the middle of no man's land after an attack. And he'd get right up to the German wire. And men would be out there wounded and he'd help me out, try to drag them back in. And the men, he was famous. He had this catchphrase and the men out there in the darkness thinking that this is it. You know, I'm, I'm laying there in the shell hole or what have you. I'm bleeding. I'm, you know, I'm too near the, the enemy wire. Nothing's going to save me now. And then they'd hear this scrabbling around and they'd hear the voice. It's only me. It's only me. You know, Theodore Bailey's catchphrase. And they'd know, I'm going to be all right. It's the chaplain. That's the extreme end of it. But I think that the sense of that, that you could trust them, it's like, he's here, so I know I'm going to be all right now, in the sense that he's going to try and help me. And um, from the Catholic perspective, you know, well, even if you're not, even if you're dying, you're going to get that benediction. You're going to get that, that the last rites, which is so important to that. I think that, that the chaplains were were very important to the men indeed. And I think it's uh, this is the other thing that, that you know is underestimated. Is of course, particularly on the Western Front, it's a Catholic landscape. The fighting in, in Catholic landscapes. But as, as you know, most members of the Western Front Association will be aware. You know, they've been out on the battlefield tours, and even now, you know, you go to a small, you know, little community on, you know, the Somme or where, where have you, and you've got the Marais, the village, you've got the crucifix, you know, so you have you have religious symbol symbolism all over the battlefield. So it was a very present part of people's lives, 
out there to the degree that it, it had a huge impact on how religion developed after the war. So, for example, you know, take, take Anglicanism and the low church and then obviously the nonconformist religions who, who were totally opposed to, to sort of, you know, um, the symbolism that obviously the high church and the Catholics would embrace, you know, crucifixes, you know, religious pendants, etc. But they're surrounded by it. So it becomes so common to their, you know, to their daily lives that it become, that becomes a common currency. And you start seeing men of all faiths thinking, well, what harm is it going to do me? Maybe it will work for me if I get a, a, a rosary or, or a, a crucifix on a chain or a pendant that's going to be blessed. What have I got to lose? I'm here, I might lose my life. And so all that kind of stuff becomes a currency to the degree that after the war is over and when they're deciding on the designs for the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, the cross of sacrifice, of course, the Church of England is totally opposed to that. You know, this is, this is idolatrous. It's like, you know, that, that level of symbolism. But the war has changed people's reactions, reactions and responses to that so much through living in that landscape, that it's, it's a lost argument. And of course, we get the crosses of sacrifice as part of, you know, is now the symbolism of, of remembrance that we all, you know, as, as adherents and students of the First World War are so familiar with. And it's hard to believe that, you know, at the time that was controversial. But that's how the war changed sort of acceptance of religious symbolism. So it has a huge impact on on the way that you know we live with the symbolism of religion to this to this day because it changed it indelibly. That had an impact on the men at the time, you know, and that that fed through into their their lives, their day to day lives. And the chaplains were, you know, on the whole, quite a present uh, part of their lives. They weren't distant figures, you know. There was a lot of chaplains, and yes, some of them didn't, you know, were quite happy, understandably, to stay away from the fighting. But um, you know, I, I, there was a, there was a huge number of them who were very, very present. Um, you know, it wouldn't be an uncommon sight, even in the frontline trenches, to see a chaplain. So you know, a very, very um, underestimated part of the existence of British soldiers in, you know, in the First World War. And finally, Martin, where can people find out more about your research? Well, I suppose the, 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 um, the key work that I did, which you can find online, actually, I did, I did a research uh, MA into, um, well, I looked specifically at um, the role of Roman Catholic chaplains in the First World War. Um, but obviously it touches on all the different faiths within that. Um, and that is actually called, that's, um, uh, it's called Roman Catholic Army Chaplains During the First World War, uh, colon, Roles, Experiences and Dilemmas by myself, Martin Purdy, P-U-R-D-Y. That's my, I suppose, key text that's, that's most referenced um, on in this field. But there's, there's an awful lot of, of very good work out there by uh, Michael Snape's uh, done a lot of really interesting work, cross-denominational. Linda Park has done a lot of work on uh, the Church of England, and uh, which which is um, uh, which is a real quality as well. So I think 
I think if people are, are interested in finding out more, those you know perhaps they could start there and and, and work out from that 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 point. Well, that's great, Martin. Thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Lovely to speak to you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.